please join me at least in listening at uh, Genesis chapter 41, beginning at verse 37. Please attend to God's holy and inerrant word. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee! So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Phaneah, and he gave him his wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was so immeasurable." And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all the toil, all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands." Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your holy word. I ask that uh, all of our minds would be attentive, that our hearts would be opened to behold your son here, that you would keep my mouth from error, that I would not wander into the ideas of mere men, but rather that you would have me to accurately explain your thoughts and the workings of your Holy Spirit who inspired this text handed down to us through the centuries. May it be so, for the glory of Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen. Well, I know that each member of this congregation and each of your elders and uh, indeed all the leaders and people throughout our denomination have a very high regard for Scripture. We know that every word matters. God does not have accidents of what He includes or forgot or what gets skipped over. Everything is here on purpose. So today we come to a passage that might present 
to us the idea, you know, what's the point? Is this just an interesting historical lesson? Uh, what significance is there really for us today? Joseph lived a long time ago. This is a really unique situation. We're not looking for it to be repeated. What is the point for us? What is the significance? What can we learn from it? And really, these are questions that come to our minds or should when we come to any text. I think some things grab us, are more exciting or more provocative. Uh, We could relate to them better, and so the answers to those questions might come a little more quickly. But at every text we approach in Scripture, we need to ask these questions. What does this tell me about the one true triune God? And what can I, and we as a family, as a church, whatever group we're with, what can we learn from it? So these two questions I want to be very upfront in asking. I don't want to be clever in my presentation here and have some little thing I slide in at the end. So I'll just go by the adage of tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell you what you told them. And so to be clear in answering these two questions, and it's even clear in the outline that I've printed for you, fairly clear in the title, so nothing subtle here, I believe the two answers to these two questions are that Joseph in this text is a picture of of Christ and His Lordship over the whole world. To Him all must come who have hope of salvation. So certainly people came to Joseph for temporal salvation, for the saving of their bodies. They were famished and they needed food to to survive. And we come to Jesus for oh so much more than that. But those are the two answers to our two questions. What does this text tell me about God? And what must I do in response? Joseph is a picture of Christ providing for our necessary salvation. And what must we do? Come to Him. And I'll uh, stress it later on. We come to Him not just at the beginning of our walk in uh, humility and repentance, but we come to Him daily for sustaining grace throughout all of our walk, even into eternity. So let us not be like Pharaoh, who probably merely looked for an expedient solution. I think he was just glad to have somebody to keep the ship steady through the years that were ahead. Uh, Let us also not be like those who simply want their positions of power or their wealth or whatever the status quo is for them to be maintained. Uh, Oftentimes, it takes the Lord's severe providences to drive us away from the myth of stability in our own power. In the end, we are humbled thereby. So let us rather be like those who come to Christ because we see and have been told and understand and have our hearts pierced by the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. We need Him daily, ongoing, and there is no other source that will satisfy. Truly, there is nowhere and no one else to which we can go. Jesus is the one. So let's explore this passage uh, with that general thought in mind. And again, to summarize, just to repeat it, Joseph, as Lord over Egypt, gives us a vivid picture of Christ's lordship over the world. And second, that we, like all the peoples of the countries who came to Joseph for sustenance, we must come to Jesus for our spiritual sustenance as well. Through and through, I believe this story rings true of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll take the time to look at some of the historical details that Lord, the Lord has preserved for us in the sacred text uh, that guide us in these ideas. A bit of background, though. Uh, granted, I've dropped you into the middle, not just of this chapter, uh, but the middle of uh, the story about Joseph, which occupies a significant portion of the whole book of Genesis. 
Uh, so a bit of background and context, I believe, will be helpful. Uh, obviously, Joseph is a familiar story, but I don't want to assume too much, so let's just give some broad details. Uh, in the preceding part of chapter 41, uh, so the first half of this chapter, recall that Pharaoh had a dream, and that dream, he said, needed an interpretation. As many leaders throughout history, God has spoken to them in dreams, uh, brought conviction, but they were confused. They did not have the light of the Spirit to show them the answer, so God provided the answer through His prophets. Uh, thinking of Daniel here is another example. So Pharaoh had a dream, needed an interpretation. Uh, Joseph was brought in to fill that gap because of his reputation for accurately interpreting dreams. You'll recall that that reputation was established earlier in the story when Joseph, who had been kidnapped and then wrongly imprisoned, while in prison had opportunity to interpret two people's dreams. Uh, he thought that those correct interpretations would be his ticket out of the jail. It was God's providence. That wasn't to be the case. But one of those men, having seen the true interpretation of his dream, later when hearing that Pharaoh needed an interpretation, was like, aha, I know the man. He interpreted my dream, so let's go fetch him. Uh, Pharaoh doesn't seem too concerned that a foreigner and a criminal is the one who's going to answer the dream. I guess it's not a modern phenomenon to overlook one's background in history when they're useful to us, and Pharaoh is certainly an example. He just wants an answer. He just wants a solution to the dream, and uh, given the answer, but he gives a little bit more of an answer. Uh, to outline the full response Joseph gives, draw your attention to verse 16 of chapter 41, where he says, this is the beginning of Joseph's answer, he says, it, that is the answer, is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. That's a good beginning. Joseph is humble enough to recognize that he's not so wise and smart and clever that the answer and the insights will come from him. But this is a spiritual insight. God gives the answer, speaking through the mouth of his holy prophets to speak the truth to Pharaoh. So with that introduction, God will give you, Mr. Pharaoh, an answer of peace. Joseph then gave not only the interpretation, but also the plan of action to kind of manage the situation that is the meaning of the dream. So, three-part answer I want to stress at this point. That preamble, God will give you the answer through my, Joseph's mouth. These are the events that are symbolized in the dream. And here's my suggestion for how you should manage the events being foretold in the dream. So very clearly, Pharaoh was uh, told that the answer was of God, that the situation was of God, and here's a way to manage it. All glory given to the Lord as the author and the interpreter of the dream and the history that would be unfolding that the dream represents. So that brings us, I think, adequately to the beginning of our text for today, verse 37. Let me read that again. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all his servants. So we're told that the advice, that's the word the New King James translates it, or proposal, as some other versions have it, was well received by Pharaoh. Uh, strictly speaking, uh, the underlying meaning of that word there uh, really speaks uh, to the whole speech. So saying the words of Joseph were pleasing to Pharaoh. But in context, you see here, Pharaoh really makes no comment about uh, the seven years of feast and seven years of famine. It appears to me he's like, well, I guess that's what it is. You know, I can't fight against God. It's going to happen. What pleases him 
is the plan of action to deal with it, right? That's what the whole rest of this uh, chapter and the unfolding history is showing. Okay, let's, let's, what are we going to do about this? Uh, Pharaoh makes no fight, no question against uh, the history about to unfold. He's concerned, you know, how are we going to weather this storm? So that's the proposal, that's the advice that Pharaoh is pleased by. Joseph, functioning as a prophet, as I said, explained both the problem and the remedy, uh, bringing this to bear on the person of Christ. And throughout our discussion here, I want to intersperse how Joseph is a picture of Christ. And I'll take an aside moment at this point to draw your attention to the back of your uh, sermon outline, which uh, is a table. You know, I found maybe two-thirds of this online and added uh, some things to it, and the list could be much longer, uh, the parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Christ. So I'll leave this to you for further reflection and meditation. Turn it back over. All eyes on me. Okay. Distraction ended. Um, but bring our attention to bear on the person of Christ at this one detail, and again, the many others you can uh, follow up on later, we see that Jesus, uh, just like Joseph, spelled out the problem as well as a solution, right? God does not leave us without a plan for action. Uh, Jesus does not come and tell everybody, you're sinners, you're sinners, you're sinners, you're going to hell. That's all. Take care. You know, see you next week at the next speaking engagement. He doesn't do that. He gives the solution, which is repent and believe the gospel. Uh, so similarly, Joseph functions in that capacity, presenting the problem, seven years of plenty and then famine, and then the solution, his management plan. Uh, there's also, uh, I would say, the, the necessity is stressed in the gospel, uh, the, the singular necessity of what Christ presents as that solution. Uh, one key verse in that regard is Matthew 16, 21, and there's other instances in Mark and, uh, that you could look up, but where Jesus says, I must suffer many things and be killed. That word must it is necessary to happen. It must be the case that Jesus would go to Jerusalem, that he would be uh, unjustly tried, false witnesses, and all these things. It had to happen. Jesus himself uses the word there, must. I must suffer many things and be killed. There was no other way. And so all who submit to and cling to God's worth word recognize the same. Uh, we don't try to avoid the consequences of our sin individually or of original sin. We hopefully uh, over time make less excuses about it. Uh, we see that God's ways are true, that His solution is true and good and right, and it is the only way. And in doing so, we see that His mercies are awesome. So this is all to say that Christ's crucifixion was necessary to ransom sinners. Penal substitutionary atonement was the only way we could be freed of guilt and the punishment our sins deserved. I was uh, recalling this morning uh, when I was a child, I want to say probably nine or ten years old, and just so you all know, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I think this was this uh, thought or event in my life was triggered by a, a summer Bible daycare type of thing that I went to in my youth. And I remember, so I was exposed to Bible stories, uh, but I remember thinking at that age, why did Jesus have to die? You know, couldn't Barabbas have been kept in prison and Jesus released? You know, that seems to be the happier Hollywood ending that my unenlightened heart wanted. Uh, but no, <laughs> foolish as that is, because if that had been the case, 
There was no atonement for our sins. Again, Jesus must suffer many things and be killed. Uh, it must come to pass that there would be these years of famine after the years of plenty and that there would be some way to survive. And we know the rest of the story, so we can understand the must because there had to be this worldwide famine so that Israel would be forced into Egypt so that they could find Joseph and be reunited and there'd be the exile and they'd come back and they'd go through Sinai. You know, we know the whole rest of the story so we can see how God worked those providences. And it's the same for the cross, right? God predetermined these evil acts of men because it must happen. There was no other way for our sin to be atoned for. So, excusing the naivety of and simplistic thoughts of my youth, plainly wrong, it would not have been a good thing for Jesus to avoid the cross. It was a very good thing that He went there, painful and ugly as it was. It was necessary. I will uh, insert a brief comment to note at this point that uh, the divine author here is not commenting on whether it was right in terms of a general principle of civics for Pharaoh to implement a a 20% tax rate to really confiscate all these crops and store them up and then dole them out. And it's kind of an extortion, I think, that comes up later when people are so desperate. So God is not endorsing that, and it's not a standard for perhaps even emergency management. I don't want to get into that. But uh, merely we read that Pharaoh and his court liked the idea of surviving the trial ahead, and they were pleased, as the text says, pleased by the proposal that he offered. And similarly, God the Father and all the angels were delighted for the curse to be reversed, uh, for the world to be saved, for the elect to be gathered, for blood to be shed that sinners might be ransomed and free. So certainly it's only in unique circumstances that murderous unjust, treasonous death on a cross turns out to be a good thing. This is not some standard of behavior. These are very unique circumstances. So that wraps up uh, point one from verse 37, that the words of life are heard, as pronounced by the prophet Joseph here, and they are valued. And similarly, praise be to God, the words of Christ are heard by His people, and they are valued. Amen? Moving on to the second point, verses 38 to 46. Let me read that again as well. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck, and he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave him his wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. I hope, uh, just through your general exposure to Bible stories, that you hear in those verses I just repeated, 
hints of other places in the Bible. Uh, perhaps the king's treatment of Mordecai, right, when he was exalted for his uh, favorable action. That's in the book of Esther. Or even the triumphal entry of Jesus, right? These, the way that people laud their friends when they're in positions of high power it comes up in various places uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, but I want to narrow in on one detail. Uh, we could spend a lot of time picking apart uh, all of those details and how they point to Christ. But I want to focus in on just one in my Bible on the previous page. That Pharaoh here hints, or sorry, hits on the key qualifications for the challenge ahead. The words I want to focus on, in whom is the Spirit of God. Even those very words should draw our attentions to other places in Scripture, namely in Numbers, where they're used to describe Joshua, and in Daniel, where in four different places it refers to Daniel. Isn't it interesting that, uh, at least in the case of Daniel, these pagan men, and here exactly the same, recognize something's different. Uh, It wasn't just his skill and his elocution and how handsome he was. That, That convinces a lot of people that, oh, he'll be a good leader. But here Pharaoh says, in whom is the Spirit of God. That is the distinguishing characteristic. That is what makes Joseph recognizable as the one suited to the task. So I want to stress that the excellence of a leader is not derived merely from the degree of the skill of his competencies, but rather the degree to which he is governed by the Holy Spirit. This is so absolutely uh, essential. Uh, It's a mistake we often make, uh, whether it be in church or in business or in home. Oh, we look for skill. I remember talking to another pastor in the CPC uh, about a year ago, and he is a guy who's been in ministry for 30 years, extremely successful by most people's standards, and he, without me saying anything, he's like, you know, we too often elevate men who talk good, talk smooth, and look good and seem to have it all together. And that's not what God would have us to see as the qualifications for an elder. Yes, in the epistles, there are some measures of competencies. Manages his home well, is not a glutton and a drunk, and these things. And so self-control being, a, I'll call it a competency. But notice, that's a spiritual competency. How is the Spirit of God working in that man? right? In whom is the Spirit of God, are the words of Pharaoh. Does he have a good speaking ability? Yeah, that's helpful, but God speaks through donkeys, right? Uh, Does he have a winsome personality and gain people's allegiances? Uh, Very dangerous and uh, destructive and unenlightened men do exactly that. Uh, Does he manage money well and have profitable investments? People of enormous power and success do that. doesn't mean they have the Spirit of God in them. Because worldly men can do all that quite well. So to stress again, if I, had, if I was a fist-pounding kind of guy, I'd, I'd pound it now. Does he have the Spirit of God in him? And who but Jesus has the Spirit of God in him par excellence, right? To quote Mark 1, verses 10 through 11, He saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the presence of the Spirit upon the Son brought forth this statement of paternal divine praise from God the Father. He was pleased there to see the Spirit and His Son. 
Note also that it is to such a one as this whom God the Father entrusts the world. Speaking here of the uh, current mediatorial reign of Christ. God the Father has put all things under the subjection of Christ. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 teaches us this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's who's worthy of that kind of responsibility, the one whom is the Spirit of God, right? 1 Corinthians 15 teaches this exact same thing. All things are being put under the subjection of Christ, in whom is the Spirit of God par excellence. So really, it's the indwelling of the Spirit and uh, leadership, dominion-taking, to use a DCC word, that are linked, right? True success in the latter, leadership, is not, absolutely not possible without the former. If there is not the abiding indwelling of the Holy Spirit, leadership will not be successful. Eternally speaking, it might be outwardly, temporarily, but it will not be so eternally speaking. And here, I believe, is a critical application for us. Uh, and this is a point of encouragement. I'm not trying to tear down people's models of leadership or something. This is all stuff you've heard before. So remember, friends, that by virtue of the new birth, all Christians have the Spirit of God. I don't want you to think you've got to go out and find something new, read some new book, follow some new lecture series, download some new podcasts. No, all Christians have the Spirit of God. Having been given new life by the Spirit, though, and this is, I think, where we... Uh, stumble at times, having been given new life by the Spirit, we must continue to live by the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. Uh, the flesh, we're told in John 6, profits nothing. Uh, we must not begin our Christian life by the Spirit, right? It's easy to buy into that, you know, the gospel of grace, nothing of our works can merit anything, it's all a gift of God, it, the Spirit uh, sows the seeds of faith and grows that to maturity and we cry out and are saved, you know, justification by faith, the Reformation, all that, we got that down pretty good. We're saved by faith, it's a spiritual act of God. But let us not then think, okay, now I'm good to go, I just need to work hard, read the good books, follow the good lecture series. No. And uh, Galatians 3 is a key point in Romans 9, 8 also. We must not begin our Christian life by the Spirit and then try to continue by some other means. It will lead to sad failure sooner or later. We can't govern ourselves, our families, our churches, our businesses, nor our nations by carnal tools, it, and, uh, nor dressed up carnal tools you know, Bible-draped carnal tools. Uh, it doesn't work. Trust me. Romans 8, I want to lead your attention to for further study. And Galatians 3, as I said, there are helpful texts in this manner. So the abiding uh, presence of the Holy Spirit, in whom is the Spirit of God, is what Pharaoh said, is not just the starting point, and then Joseph could turn a different page the next day and be successful. No. For Joseph, for us, and obviously in Christ's ministry, the Spirit must be present day by day, minute by minute, moment by moment. So, point two to summarize, by the indwelling of the Spirit, Joseph and Jesus and we are made suitable to the task that God has called us, right? For point three, let's look at verses 47 to 49. Now, in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. 
The key point is that Joseph was effective in his work. Praise God, right? The Spirit doesn't just hang out there and leave no good fruit. He certainly brings results, and there was results. Um, not saying that Joseph was out there farming, but he was effective in his gathering, right? That was his, his task, was to gather so there would be some left for later when the harvest stopped. So Joseph was successful in his gathering task. Storehouses were filled with so much grain that they stopped counting. As the text says, verse 49, it was immeasurable. That is a lot of grain. You know, the Egyptians are renowned for their math of the age. I'm sure they tried to count, but really they stopped. They couldn't. It, it could not be measured. That's what the word immeasurable means. Uh, I'm sure there's people who tried to do the math today on thinking, well, how much grain would that have been? You know, we've got this many acres in the Nile Delta. It's really fertile and all this thing. You know, how big were the storehouses? Well, it was immeasurable, so don't try and measure it. I want to stress at this point, um, I'm not trying to suggest to you and this is just an overall principle as we get into this point, that Joseph's life is an allegory for Christ, right? Uh, an allegory is a sort of pictorial story, and you pick out all these little details and it expands into a bigger story uh, over here. Well, I, I'm not suggesting that. I think we need to be very careful in our use of allegory uh, as illuminating the life of Christ. So we shouldn't look for points of correspondence in every detail, and you could be really creative, um, as some schools of interpretation have done throughout church history, but that would lead us astray. Rather, my point is we see hints of Christ, and we can say, oh yeah, that's a little principle. It's tied in over here, and uh, more stuff listed on the back than what I'll say in the sermon here. Uh, and the reason I bring that up at this point is to note that this isn't a precise allegory because, in fact, Jesus didn't have seven years of what we would call a prosperous gathering ministry, right? Uh, by most accounts, well, he had three years of ministry, not seven, uh, though they did start at the age 30, kind of interesting. Uh, but those years of ministry Jesus had were not marked by a remarkable ingathering of so much produce that it was impossible to store, right? That was left for those who would follow him. Uh, the number of converts during Jesus' life was actually very small. Uh, any evangelist today would be you know, shamed if that's all he got, um, but it was Jesus. And he, of course, was very successful at what he was sent to do. We're actually told in Scripture that he accomplished everything his father sent for him. So his calling was a little different than Joseph here. So all that to say, we're not looking for a precise correspondence on every detail, Joseph's life to Jesus's, but only that there's a, uh, a general uh, hinting and, uh, on key points. Uh, we'll hope to draw that out. So if we see here an inconsistency, hey, pastor, what, what's up with, you know, difference in the number of years, there's a difference in the prosperity, that inconsistency only comes up if we're overly narrow when we're uh, trying to draw out an allegory. And also, I would challenge us, uh, I think we can see a, an error, an apparent error, if we fail to consider the scope of Jesus' ministry, right? His, his earthly ministry, as we often call it, theological terms, his incarnation was uh, sh short in the number of years. You know, it was in 30 when he began, and he died several years later. So, that tail end was his uh, adult ministry and his whole life was not that long. So true enough, the brief period of his incarnation uh, was not hugely successful 
like Joseph was in gathering these immeasurable harvests. But Jesus' ministry, remember, extends a whole lot longer than his incarnation. Uh, His earthly ministry was a time of setting the foundation for a great edifice that continues even today and on into the future to grow. Uh, The building of this wonderful, vast, immeasurable storehouse was not limited to the time from his birth to his ascension or even from his baptism to his ascension. Rather, it extends even to now and into the future, all the way to the consummation of history. So let's be challenged by the fact that Jesus' ministry was successful and it is continuing to be successful. He departed bodily at his ascension but returned spiritually at Pentecost and continues that now. So the time frame is different for Joseph and Jesus, but the idea is the same. That idea of bounty and of gathering is what I want to emphasize. And the language clearly supports this. The word translated gathered, which is in verses 48 and 49, is used throughout the Old Testament uh, in the context of God gathering His people. Uh, It's common among the prophets who spoke of gathering the remnant out of the heathen lands, gathering them from the Babylonian exile and such. That's mentioned in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 20, etc. And that itself, so those uh, exile passages in the prophets, uh, point towards the New Testament era in which God gathers His elect from among the Gentiles, right? So this whole gathering of the church, the gathering of Israel, gathering of the elect is uh, the same, I would propose to you, as this gathering of the grain. Further, uh, Linguistically, we have the phrase, as the sand of the sea. Does that ring in your ear? Does that sound familiar? It's in verse 49. Uh, it should call to our minds the covenant promise given to Jacob, and that's when he crossed the river uh, in verse 30, or chapter 32, earlier in Genesis. So God promises, I will multiply you as the sand of the sea, which is to say, immeasurably. Can't be counted. <clears throat> So, I'm sure uh, people out there, as I said, have done the math trying to measure immeasurability, uh, but let us not go there. The point is that it was huge, massive. Pertinent to the point of what it teaches about Christ and the gospel, let us know that the gathering of the elect is immense, right? In Pastor Kaiser's sermons, uh, toward the end of Revelation, we were given a glimpse of how big heaven might be, uh, the massive size of the New Jerusalem. It just kind of blows the mind. Uh, to think what that was like. And so let us not try to measure, right? It's just that it's amazing. Uh, our eyes are to be boggled by this, and our minds aren't starting, to, are not to do calculations. It is immeasurable. And to know that the work continues today, that gathering is happening now, uh, perhaps at this moment, if not in this room, by the Holy Spirit piercing some hearts here, uh, then somewhere else in the world, uh, God is and His Word is not without effect. The gathering is happening. Uh, the work continues on our day. <clears throat> the building up of the church uh, is occurring to an extent that we just, just boggles the mind. That uh, should bring tears to our eyes someday when we see the glories of Christ in His gathering work. So, by way of application, we can have a solid, joyful confidence that Christ is gathering an innumerable company. He wasn't a failure in his earthly ministry. Uh, He established this pattern of success that continues. And while there are maybe setbacks uh, in some places, uh, at some times, in some ministries, in some churches, 
there may be setbacks at those times, let us know that the church grows and none of Christ's sheep can be lost. Moving to our last section, verses 50 to 57. And to Joseph were born two sons <clears throat> before the years of famine came, <clears throat> who Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. I want to draw your attention on the statement here about the one source of sustenance. So the singularity, one, and what does that one provide? Sustenance. It's in verse 54. We see that there was a lack, extreme lack of food everywhere except Joseph's domain. In only one place was bread to be found. Uh, Egyptians didn't have any crops, nor did people from other countries. It was only the storehouses preserving the harvest from those previous years that provided the food. And those storehouses were under Joseph's charge. And as I referred to earlier, we might criticize the centralized status management of these food resources, but we cannot, let us not, liberals do, <clears throat> but let us not criticize the centralized nature of the spiritual food that Christ presides over, right? There are plenty of, people, plenty of people out there who fight against the idea that Christ is the only way, that He is the only, only way to heaven, that His gospel is the only right answer. But really, that's what the story is pointing to here. Pharaoh didn't say, you know, I got a couple people you can go to, pick which one, whichever one makes you happy, whichever one has the easier program. No, he said, you need help? Go to Joseph. That's the only solution. And we can confidently do the same with the gospel. Friend, you're suffering under a burden of guilt. You recognize that life is hopeless apart from Christ. There's Jesus. <clears throat> we don't say there's Jesus or, 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 right? <clears throat> we recognize, because Scripture tells us, the singularity of the solution. There is one name under heaven by which we may be saved, and that is the name Jesus Christ. A multiple passage we could cite for this, Colossians 2.3, John 14.6, Acts 4.12, as I just said. So, the singularity the Bible is very clear, painfully clear, to those who don't want to acknowledge the truth. Uh, and we can be confident, because uh, lots of people would like to suppose uh, that a person you know, in Japan can achieve a solution through their ancestor worship, or a person in Africa can get spiritual nourishment from his voodoo worship, or our neighbors here in the United States can get spiritual nourishment from their materialistic worship. No. <laughs> There is only one source of spiritual nourishment, and that is Jesus. So at the same time that Jesus is presented in the Bible as the only solution, the problem. 
the Bible is also clear that everyone needs nourishment, right? Let us not think that we are, you know, breatharians who can survive off of just what we breathe uh, or that uh, we can survive without physical food. How foolish is that, right? Everybody knows you've got to eat, you've got to drink. At some point, barring miraculous circumstances, uh, you're going to run out of gas. It just can't be done. Let us not make the same foolish thing in terms of spiritual resources, right? A person who doesn't take in calories is going to have their body starve. A person who doesn't take in spiritual food will similarly have their soul waste away into death. Jesus is that spiritual food, lest we die. Key verses on this, uh, John 6, a beautiful place to go to, that discourse on Jesus being the bread of life. Let's read for you just two portions of that. God the Father gives the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And of course, there's the companion idea of living water, right? With a woman at the well, Jesus tells her, the one who drinks of the water I give, you'll never thirst again. That's tremendous. Yeah, working out in humid summers <clears throat> this, this last year, you get thirsty. And you, you, you drink some, and half an hour you're thirsty again. And an hour later, even last night doing snow with the hot air blowing out of the thing, because I'm a driver, I don't shovel. It's a pretty good deal. Uh, but still, that hot air on my throat is just getting so dry. I'm drinking water. And half an hour later, I have to drink again. So what's so remarkable about Jesus' comment there to the woman at the well is, this is spiritual water. You will never drink again. Thought just comes to my mind, maybe yours too. But wait a second, Mr. Elliot, you just said you got to continually drink of Christ. <laughs> so to answer that uh, potential uh, conflict, let us know that there is no one else you can go to, right? We continue to abide in Christ. We continue to drink of Him. Having received the true water, our souls are satisfied in terms of justification. But with our ongoing sanctification, we continue to abide in Christ. So all that to say, there's one source of the spiritual nourishment, bread or water, and that one source is Christ. And to acknowledge, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we need help. Jesus is the manager of this divine storehouse of spiritual food. He opens them up to those who have a need, to those who go to Him and express their need. It's unwise, and it sets us up for trouble, who sit back and think, I'm okay. You know, I, I can go another half hour. <clears throat> I learned that lesson on some projects last summer. The end of a day without drinking, you're like crawling up the stairs in your house thinking you're going to die because you got cramps and things. So let us not make that mistake spiritually, but to know that we are thirsty and that the drink is provided graciously as a gift. So friends, apart from the gift of God that is Christ Jesus, we are all in trouble. We are starving to death. We're dying of thirst. We have nowhere else to go. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus has come. The food is offered. It's prepared. We, we see it pictorially in the Lord's table every Sunday. Uh, he doesn't owe it to us, yet He gives it to us. There's nothing we could give to Him to create a fair trade. And that's another point of discontinuity uh, I want to draw attention to between Joseph. You know, we don't buy spiritual grace from Christ. They bought food. Uh, though I think that is interestingly portrayed in the rest of the story with Joseph. Remember when his brothers finally do come and they bring these bags of 
of gold to buy the grain, and then when they return, they're like, oh no, the, the coins are back in our bags. He's going to think we stole it, right? I think that's God saying, I don't need anything from you. That's the picture being painted there. So while the countries came and bought uh, grain from Joseph, we, we don't buy anything from the Lord, right? What an absurd thought to think we could put a price on it. Uh, Judas learned that lesson. He put 30 pieces of silver on the price of uh, Christ's head, and it ate his stomach out, literally. So let us not th think that we can buy anything. There's nothing we could give him to create a fair trade. Yet he is pleased to give freely, liberally, without restraint. That's the best food we can imagine, and we'll never hunger again. And it sustains us to live forever. Yes, eternal life is the result of the food that Jesus offers. So by way of conclusion, I hope our brief inquiry into this part of Joseph's biography has made you hungry, if not because of the smells of the crockpots wafting, at least to stimulate that appetite in our souls. Truly, the Lord does use our body impulses uh, to drive us in the spiritual realm. Uh, sometimes He has to take away those temporal comforts and strip us bare in order to see, for have, have us see uh, how, how destitute and how empty we are without Him and how needful we are of His sustaining grace. Sometimes He has to chasten us with sore trials, and I greatly appreciate that prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, for us to be thankful in all things. It's all good and loving things from the hand of our Father. So I ask you today to meditate on the life of Joseph, specifically his ministry as the Lord of Egypt, in which he was the only hope of the temporally hungry. Anyone who desired food was told where to go. Pharaoh said it plainly, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. So I hope that this uh, message this morning has stirred up your spiritual appetite. Uh, perhaps for those who have never been humbled to the point of seeking the Lord's saving grace, to know that He is there with abundant food to give you for the saving of your soul for eternity. For those who already are assured of that, to know that He continues to offer sustaining grace in all the challenges we have. And when we turn our back on that and try and do it in our own strength, we are setting ourselves up for failure. So Pharaoh said, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. I say, go to Jesus, and whatever he says to you, do. He is a loving and gentle Lord, having borne our burdens. So friends, we all need to be fed lest we die, and know that Christ is the bread of life. Come to him, won't you? His storehouses are open. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are awed by your wisdom, uh, by your generosity. Uh, I pray that we each here would be humbled in our own ways, that you would speak to our hearts, that your spirit, uh, working so much more powerfully than uh, the words or weapons of man, uh, would call to our minds today the ways in which we have tried to do things in a carnal way, that we would lay those down, burn them as they burned the wicked books in Acts, and uh, turn our backs on those tools and instead uh, seek the 
spiritual weapons that you have provided, the spiritual graces whereby you uh, so kindly equip us for the work you've called us to. Uh, Jesus was successful in everything that you, Father, uh, called him to. May we see similar success in our sanctification and in our callings. Uh, I also pray your blessing upon those uh, perhaps in this room or who may hear this recording at a future date who uh, are still walking in their own power, who have not been humbled to know your love and your provision. May you, without too much pain, (laughs) we in our own human uh, desires, but so uh, whatever, Lord, that you cause to bring upon them. I think of my father and my brother and and others who are successful outwardly, uh, but are empty according to your estimation, and others like them, Father, that you would reach out to them and uh, give them your spirit as you so graciously given to us in the household of faith, that we would have the joy of rejoicing with the angels as it comes to be true in those people's lives, that in them is the Spirit of God. May this be so for your glory and, and again, as I said, for our joy. Amen.